The title of today's teaching is Thirsting for God When Despair Comes Knocking at Your Door. I was trying to get an award for the longest title. I even added something else, Finding Hope in the Psalms. I was just going to keep adding to it because there's a lot I want to say today from the Psalms. Uh, I love the Bible. I love the Psalms. I love the realness, the genuineness. I love how the psalmists pour out their hearts to God. They're real. They're struggling at times. They're hurting at times. They're despairing. And yet, they find hope. They have reason to rejoice. They have a reason to praise. They have a reason to keep trusting God. And the psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 42. And so you could turn there if you'd like. Hopefully you have a Bible, a smartphone, somewhere where you can follow along with me. But before we read that, I want to share a couple other psalms, a couple other verses, just to show you how real this struggle can be. Listen to the tension that you hear in Psalm 43, verse 5. The psalmist says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. In Psalm 38, verse 6 through 8, the psalmist says, I am troubled and greatly bowed down. I go, I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. And yet just several verses later in verse 15 of Psalm 38, he says, for I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. Psalm 71, 20, the first part of the verse, it says, you have shown me many troubles and distresses. The psalmist is speaking to God. God, you have showed me many troubles and distresses. And yet three verses later in Psalm 71, it says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. And Psalm 22, verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a Psalm of David. It's repeated by Jesus on the cross. And then in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And I can go on and on and on throughout the Psalms to see this tension, this struggle. God, where are you? God, I'm in pain. God, this is difficult. I'm despairing. I'm bent over. I'm bowed down. I, I don't know what to do, God, but yet I hope in you. God, yet I praise you. I trust you. I will sing of your praises. And that's what we're going to see today in Psalm 42. Perhaps you can relate a little bit in your Christian walk with the Lord. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 42. It says in your Bible, most likely, a mascal of the sons of Korah. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Who are the sons of Korah? Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? 
Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Do you hear the struggle there? Do you hear the tension? It's almost like a wrestling match going on between his mind and his soul and his mind and his heart. He knows God is good. God is his rock. He's trusting in God. He's praising God. And yet he's looking at his circumstances. And then he's despairing. And his enemies are saying, where is your God? And so he's going back and forth. When he looks to God, things are good and he's trusting in God. But just within the next breath, he's doubting. God, where are you? What's going on? Even to the point where he's saying, why are you in despair, my soul? He's talking to himself. It's as if he's saying, self, listen here. Hope in God, self. Trust in God. Praise God. This battle. And in a sense, you could say we're all preachers. You might not come up here on a Sunday morning and preach, but you should be preaching to yourself and I should be preaching to myself on a daily basis. Like the psalmist here. The struggle can be real in our lives. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And it can be difficult, but we need to remind ourselves daily of the goodness of God, of what he's done in our lives, of the salvation that he's provided to us through Christ. The last couple years, I've been working at the Ventura County Rescue Mission, a life recovery program in Oxnard. We walk guys through a 10-month program, and I've, I've been pretty open about the struggles and the despair and the oppression that I've gone through over the last couple years as I've been sharing with the young adult group and even on a Wednesday night, just mentioning how I'm walking alongside these guys at the rescue mission. They're coming from the jail system. They're coming off the streets. They're coming in with addictions. Some of them, while I'm interviewing them for the program, are high right in front of me on some heavy drugs. They're on death's doorstep. And they come into the mission And I teach them and the other chaplains as well. We teach them and we encourage them and we pray with them and we preach to them and we walk alongside them and then we hear that some of them overdose. We find out such and such we just found in a hotel room over the weekend. He passed away. And it's hard. And you think, Lord, I can't, I don't know if I can bear walking alongside shoulder to shoulder with one more and then finding out he's dead the next day. It's hard to go into work expecting this. It's hard going into work knowing even if they're not going to overdose, that they're struggling so, 
the struggle is so real with their addiction that at any moment they could walk out of those doors and who knows what's going to happen to them on the streets. But even more than that, you're pleading with them to come to Christ and many of them won't. And so if it's not physical death, it's spiritual death that you see right on the horizon for them. And you're praying for them, you're pleading for them, you're like, here's the antidote, here it is, you need Jesus Christ, and many of them don't want to accept Christ. And so it's a struggle. And I've gotta be real, I, there's days where I'm driving to work and I'm like, I'm singing to the Lord. I'm in the Psalms. Psalm 63, Psalm 23, those have been like my Psalms the last two years. I'll be at the mission walking around during break. I'll go into the chapel and I'll just walk around and repeat Psalm 63. Sing to the Lord, cry out to the Lord. And praise God, we have seen salvations at the mission. There's a guy named David who came in recently, a couple months ago, and he said, I've only been in church twice in my whole life. And it was for funerals. He came in pretty much an atheist, around 50 years old. And he accepted Christ, I think, right around three or four days coming to the mission. And some of the guys say they accept Christ, but you don't see all that much fruit. And you hope, love hopes all things, you hope that they really know Jesus. And you give it time and some of them start to bear more fruit. But this guy, David, from the time he came in and accepted Christ, It's as if he's in my office every five minutes knocking on my door. Hey, Nick, can you give me another assignment? Can you give me a Bible reading plan? Will you pray with me? I want to know more about this verse. So I give him an assignment and he comes, I give him a one-page assignment, he comes back and writes 18 pages for me. I'm like, I don't know if I've ever written an 18-page paper in my life. And I'm like, here's an assignment on faith. He writes 11 pages on faith. Here's this, an assignment on deception in the scripture, and I wrote down a couple scriptures for him, 18 pages on that. And he recently wanted to buy a new Bible. He came into my office. I got him a Bible. I got him a, a Greek lexicon. I got him a commentary. And just he's just plowing through the word, reading it daily. He's like, I want to be a pastor. I want to. And I was like, well, let's slow down a little bit. But he's just ready to serve the Lord. And it's guys like that that keep me going, that encourage me to keep preaching and to keep teaching and encouraging these guys and loving these guys, but it still is a struggle. And I love what the psalmist says here in Psalm 42, eight, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night, a song or a prayer to the God of my life. Do we have songs, hymns, and spiritual songs on our lips throughout the day? What are we singing? What are we doing with our thoughts? And before bed is a great time to just devote time to meditating on the Lord. We're commanded 50 times in scripture to sing. 50 commands to sing. I think it's one of the second most repeated commands in the Bible outside of do not fear or do not be afraid is the command to sing to the Lord. And that's what the Psalms are. They're songs to the Lord. And what I love about them is they're also prayers to God. I mean, in these 11 verses that we just read, you see God's name in all 11 verses or at least a reference to him. They're prayers to God. Athanasius Church father in A.D. 300, he was born in A.D. 300, he said the 63rd Psalm was always to be used at morning prayer. 
Christendom, 347 AD, church father, said David's psalms are in the beginning and in the middle, in the middle and end of all of their services. David is always in their mouths, not only in the cities and the churches, but also in the courts, the mountains and the deserts and the wilderness. And Jerome also from AD 340, church father tells us that in his childhood, he learned the Psalms by heart and in old age, he sang them daily. He learned the Psalms by heart as a child, just 150 Psalms, just learned them by heart and would sing them when he was older. So sometimes I memorize scripture, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Yeah, I got Psalm 23 down and then I look to these church fathers and even the desert fathers and tradition tells us that they would memorize the whole Psalms, repeat the whole Psalms would take four hours. I can't believe that, I don't know, I guess it's true that they would walk around for four hours and just repeat the Psalms every day. That's what they would do, amazing. So it encourages me to stay in the Psalms, to read the Psalms, to cry out to God with these Psalms. I love Psalm 63, as I mentioned to you. David says, my God, my God, earnestly I seek you. You could follow along if you'd like. Psalm 63, verses one through eight. I really love those verses. And you're gonna see a parallel between Psalm 63 and the Psalm today, Psalm 42. And David says, my God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands to praise your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I hope I got that right, but that's the psalm that's been on my heart and on my mind and on my lips when I'm driving to the mission, when I'm at the mission, when I'm driving home from work, before bed, that God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Where do you go in life when you're dry, when you feel empty? when you feel unfulfilled. And David tells us in Psalm 63, he's thirsting for God. And the psalmist here in Psalm 42, verse one and two tells us the same thing. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, God. That word pants can mean longing, desiring. Even one translation says crying. It's like a deer that's in this desert land. It's these deer, it's, there's a drought and they're, they're so thirsty, they're just panting for water, crying for water, where is water? And verse two, the psalmist says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now we see that it says a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now who are the sons of Korah? When I was first studying this psalm and some of the psalms attributed to the sons of Korah, I thought Korah, I thought, I remember Korah being a bad person in the Bible. And some of you Bible students will know from Numbers chapter 16 that a man by the name of Korah rose up against Moses and Aaron and was 
defying them. It was coming against Moses. It was saying, who do you think you are, Moses? You think you're the most humble man around? You're not God's chosen vessel. And Moses said, okay, we'll see about that. And some of you guys know the rest of the story. The ground was split open. The earth opened up, and it tells us in Numbers chapter 16, verses 31 and 32, that it swallowed up Korah and those around him. Fire also came forth. 250 men were killed in that uprising. Now, this person, Korah, was the great, 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 great grandpa of the sons of Korah here during the time of David. So this was 400 years earlier during the time of Moses that their great, 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 something like that, grandpa rose up against Moses and was consumed. But the text tells us in Numbers 26, 11, the sons of Korah did not die. God did not hold them responsible for for the sins of their father. So their father rose up in pride, and here God uses these humble worship leaders to lead in the perfect the procession here and the singing in the tabernacle during the time of David. It's a beautiful story. Now, did the sons of Korah write this psalm and the other psalms that are attributed to them? Eleven psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. Psalm 42, Psalm 44 through 49, Psalm 84 and 85, Psalm 87 and and 88. These psalms are all attributed to the sons of Korah. And I started researching a little bit, and I started studying some commentaries, and then I realized that there was a little bit of a debate as to whether they really wrote this psalm and those other 10 psalms or 11 psalms as well. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say. He says, although David is not mentioned as the author of this psalm, Psalm 42, The psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It's so Davidic, it smells of the son of Jesse. It bears the marks of his style and experience in every letter. We could sooner doubt the authorship of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress than question David's title to be the composer of the psalm. So him, Barnes, Henry, several other commentaries believe that King David wrote this psalm. And as I mentioned in Psalm 63, how he's thirsting for water there. And here it starts off thirsting for God. You already see the correlations there. Now, whoever the psalmist was, that's what I'll just be referring to the writer of this psalm the rest of our time as the psalmist. Whether it was all the sons of Korah, one of the, just one son of Korah, or King David, I'll refer to it as the psalmist. We also see in Psalm 84 two, which is, also attributed to the sons of Korah. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. Have you ever been so thirsty for water that you were almost willing to do anything to get water? A couple, well, I think it was last week or the week before, I'm losing track. I had COVID a couple weeks ago, was out of work for 10 days. Um, They test, because they test us every week at work and I finally got it after two years of being around the homeless population and everybody around me getting COVID for two years and then I finally got it. And so I was bummed out, but they're like, well, you have to stay home for 10 days. And I was like, well, cool. Maybe I'll be sick for like a day or two and the rest will be like a little vacation. And sure enough, I guess I got the Delta or I got a bad strain or maybe because Leah was sick and the rest of the house was sick that there was just stuff floating around in the house 
for like 10 days, but I couldn't get better. I first started with a sore throat, went to my lungs, I'm coughing all over the place, and then I couldn't stop coughing all over the place, and then I started to get like body aches, and I'm weak, and just the thought of walking to the kitchen to like get a drink of water was hard. And so that was a struggle. And Leah was feeling the same way. And so who's going to take care of the kids when both you and your wife don't want to get out of bed? And so it's like, well, you guys can just find something to eat for yourselves. So I don't know what they ate for a couple days. They found something in the (laughs) fridge. Hopefully it wasn't expired. But anyhow, that'll bring a little despair to your soul. But praise God, he got us through that. So I went back to work after the 10 days and they said, we're going to have like a staff retreat this week. We're going to go on all these hikes and it's going to be amazing. And I was still trying to get my lungs back, but we went on a couple hikes and uh, on a Thursday, I think it was not this last Thursday, but the Thursday before that, we went to the Santa Monica mountains behind Neptune's net there and they did a six mile hike and I thought it was going to be mostly flat, but no, there was some um, ascending going on. And like three guys were like, we're going to go on this, you know, crazy hike over here. And I was kind of caught in the middle because I was feeling pretty good. But the three guys were like in really good shape. They run like five miles a day. And the other guys were like at a super slow pace and they wanted to go on this really easy trail. And so I'm like, I got to go with the three guys. You know, I got to really push myself. And sure enough, I did. And... I was like 30 feet behind them the whole time. I was like, if I can just keep them in my eyes view, I'll be okay. Like, I don't want to be such a weak link that they have to slow down for me. And so anyway, I ended up running out of water like three quarters of the way through. I couldn't keep up with them. The wind was blowing. And uh, fortunately, I wasn't thirsting for water as much as the psalmist here. But man, it's a real struggle when you're thirsty, it's hot. I mean, you, you can almost feel like, de- like you're on death's door. And that's what they say. What, you can only go, what, a couple days without water? Two or three days? You can go almost 40 days without food. But water is so important. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 16, maybe you guys remember the story of King David. He is so thirsty for water, he's on death's door. And you know what King David does? He asks three of his mighty men to go get him water. He goes, I'm thirsty. There's water over there, but there's just one problem. There's that Philistine army that's between the water and us. So how are we going to get that? And he tells these three mighty men, go get the water. And these mighty men are loyal to David. They're ready to die for him. So they break through the garrison of the Philistines, as we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 23, for four. Chapter 23, 14, I'll just read it to you. It says, David was in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David had a craving and said, oh, that someone would give me, someone give me some water to drink for the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So three mighty men forced their way into the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. So mission accomplished. They broke through the garrison of the Philistines. They got the water. Their lives were spared. They brought King David the water. He's dying of thirst. And what does he do? It says he would not drink it. He poured it out as an offering to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, Lord, that I would do this. Should I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? So he would not drink it. These 
things the three mighty men did. Amazing story. They go all this way, they get this water, they risk their lives, King David pours it out. Now, I don't know how they were feeling at that point. I don't know if they were really angry with him, or maybe there was a sense in which they respected him, knowing this man is thirsting to the point of death, and he cares about us so much that he's going to pour this out as an offering to the Lord. And what I hear David saying there is, God, I thirst for you more than I thirst for this water. That's what he says in Psalm 63, and perhaps here in Psalm 42 as well. God, I want you to be my satisfaction. Yes, this water will satisfy me, but God, you are my ultimate fulfillment. And it's a beautiful picture of how we should find our satisfaction in the Lord. Let's look at verse 2 again. Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I love that, how he says the living God in verse 2. The psalmist is acknowledging that God is alive. He's active. He's intimately involved in our life. He hears our prayers. He answers us. He is alive. Some commentators believe the psalmist here is David on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom wanted to take over the kingdom. David is on the run. And that's why he says, when shall I come and appear before God? He's out in the wilderness. He's not in the typical place by the Ark of the Covenant, the tent, the tabernacle there in Jerusalem where he usually praised the Lord and sang to him with the great multitude. He's out on the run. And so he's saying here in verse two, when am I gonna go back? When will I return to Jerusalem to worship the Lord? Let's look at verse three. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That's the voice of Satan. Where is your God? Satan wants to throw doubts our way. Where's God in your life? Is God really good? Is God really loving? Does God really take care of you? Whenever you hear that voice, like the psalmist was hearing, know who it comes from. It's coming from the enemy. Verse 4, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng, that's the multitude. I used to go along with the multitude and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Have you ever been there before? You look back at your life, I used to worship. I used to raise my hands in church. I used to be on fire for the Lord. I used to hand out gospel tracts. I used to serve the church. I used to do these things and now I've drifted. Now I'm in the wilderness. Now I'm dry. My cup is empty. What do you need to do when you're in that place? You need to remind yourself of the goodness of God. You need a thirst for him. Find your satisfaction of him and remember the place to where you've fallen from. Get back on course and start serving the Lord again and cry out to him like the psalmist does here. Verse five, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. That word hope there in verse five, also found in verse 11, can be translated wait. Wait on God or hope in God. It's the same word used in Psalm 69.3. 
where it says, I am weary with my crying, my throat is parched, my eyes fail while I hope for God or while I wait for God. Psalm 147.11, the Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. And also Micah 7.7, 7, but as for me, I will be on the watch for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. It's hard to wait on the Lord. We live in a culture where everything is, happens so fast. I want a Starbucks, I go get one. And I, like Leah was telling me this morning, she wanted a Starbucks and because uh, she ran out of creamer. Just made me think of that. So you just, you just go get a Starbucks. I want to watch TV. Okay, TV on. I want dinner. Okay, I'll throw something in the microwave. It's ready in two minutes. Cool. I, I don't have a jacket I really want. Cool, I'll go just drive to the store and get the jacket. Everything is so just right there in front of us. And that can be a real blessing at times, but it can also be a curse. Because when God tells us to wait as Christians, what do we do when everything else in life we get right now? It's hard. And we have to say, Lord, give me the patience that I need to trust in you. I'm in the valley right now. I'm in the wilderness. I'm in despair. Help me to wait on you. Help me to look to you. And it's something I really need to grow in. And I think many Christians, I think it's something that the Lord wants to change in our hearts that will wait on him no matter what comes our way in life. We must remind ourselves of verses like Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side, I will not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? So part of the thing is when we're waiting on God, we're repeating the promises of God, preaching to ourselves, crying out to him, remembering what he's done in our lives. Hebrews 13.5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The word there in verse 5 where it says disturbed. Why are you disturbed within me? The Hebrew word literally means to growl as a bear. The sound of rain and waves, agitation, troubled. It's not like a minor trial that the psalmist is going through here. It's not like he's like, oh, I'm hurting. It's like he's growling within. He's, he's just so overwhelmed with despair, it's hard to even put words to it. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in despair? Sometimes God uses despair to bring us closer to himself. Some have said that they have never been as close to God than during times when they were in the wilderness or times of the valley or times of despair or depression because they had to cry out to God all the more. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, which occurred in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He's saying he despaired of life. To the point of death, it caused him to trust in God. It caused him to look to God. He had nowhere else to look. And I tell that to guys at my work when they've hit rock bottom 
There's this guy, Jonathan, who just came to the mission and he got in a car accident recently and almost died. And he's like, God has used this for me to cry out to him. He's like, I never, I don't think I ever would have cried out to the Lord unless I went through these things. And I see that over and over again. And when you hit rock bottom, you have nowhere else to look and nowhere else to go but up. And so sometimes we feel like when we're going through despair or difficult times, like what good can come from this? How can anything good come out of this? And God will mightily use those kind of trials if we look to him, draw close to him to dig deep like the psalmists do and thirst for him in the dry and weary land. I heard a story recently of a pastor who was on vacation with his wife and I think he was at like a cabin and he was sitting on the stairs of this cabin and all of a sudden he just started weeping. He was just bawling his eyes out sitting there on the stairs and his wife walked over and was like, what's going on? Like, is everything okay? Why are you, why are you like crying uncontrollably? And he said to her, I don't know. I honestly don't know why I'm in despair. And it reminded me of the psalmist here. Why are you in despair, verse 5? Why? Sometimes you don't even know why. It could be spiritual oppression. It could be hormonal. It could be emotional. It could be, or maybe you could even put your finger on it. This is exactly why I'm in despair. The thing is, what do we do with it? Can despair and depression and hurt and sorrow also correspond with joy? And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He also talks about in the book of Philippians being poured out as a drink offering, and yet he's rejoicing. So you can go through despair. You can go through hard times. You can go through sorrows. Yet the Bible commands us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. We should never feel like there's a time in our life where, yeah, it's okay to complain now. It's okay to get bitter now. This trial is so hard, I'm not going to have hope. I'm not going to rejoice. That should not exist in our lives as Christians. God wants us to look to him. Verse 6, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now what? is Hermon there in verse 6. Mount Hermon. It's a 10 to 12,000 foot tall mountain peak, 30 miles wide on the, in northern Israel. One article says there is perpetual snow in the ravines so that the tops present the appearance of radiant stripes around and below the summit. It seems that the psalmist is here in exile. He's looking to this great mountain peak 10 to 12,000 feet high snow, and he's reminded of who God is. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. What does he mean by that? Why is he referencing a waterfall? Once again, it's as if the psalmist here, he's looking at the mountains. He's looking at what's around him. He's, he's seeing the waterfall, and it's reminding him of the flood of despair that he's going through. A person by the name of Dr. Thompson in, the, in his book, Land and the Book, page 498 and 499, references this verse here. 
If you have a King James Version, it probably says water spouts there in verse 7. Waterfall or water spouts. This is what Dr. Thompson said while he was on Mount Hermon. He says, a small black cloud traverses the sky in the latter part of summer or the beginning of autumn and pours down a flood of rain that sweeps all before it. The Arabs call it sail. We call it water spout or the bursting of a cloud. In the neighborhood of Hermon, I have witnessed it repeatedly and was caught in one last year, which in five minutes flooded the whole mountainside, washed away the fallen olives, the food of the poor, overthrew stone walls, tore up by the roots large trees, and carried off whatever the tumultuous torrents encountered as they leaped madly down from terrace to terrace in noisy cascades. Every summer threshing floor along the line of its march was swept bare of all precious food. Cattle were drowned, flocks disappeared, and the mills along the streams were ruined half an hour by this sudden deluge. So he's witnessing just this catastrophic event of the floods of water going down Mount Hermon to the point where cattle are drowned, flocks disappearing, olives washed away. Pretty crazy storm, right? How much water do you need for cattle to drown? And this psalmist is perhaps seeing this and going, that's my, yep, that's how my soul feels right now. That's how much despair is sweeping over my soul. The amount of water that I'm seeing washing through here is the amount of despair going through my soul, washing over my soul. Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. And I mentioned this psalm, verse 8, Psalm 42, verse 8. I mentioned this portion earlier, but that's why I love the psalms. That's why I love to memorize these psalms, meditate on these psalms, to remind myself, what am I doing throughout the day with my free time? Am I using it to memorize his word, meditate on his word, sing songs to him? I think some of the guys at my work think I'm weird because I just walk around work singing. And they're like, what's this guy doing over here? because my voice isn't that good, but it's like, I don't care. Like, I'm in such desperation for God and wanting to know him more and asking him for help to get me through my day that I'm gonna do whatever it takes. And singing brings peace to my soul. It allows me to talk to God. And that's one way to pray to God is to sing to him. Are you singing to the Lord? Like the psalmist says here, throughout the night, a prayer to God. Verse nine, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And as you read through the psalm, you feel like, okay, he's doing good now. You know, verse eight, that was a really good one. He's reminding himself to sing. And then once again, it's like back and forth, back and forth. The more times I read this psalm, I was like, man. But then I remembered, yeah, I can relate to that. I have some good days. I go to work and I'm like, yeah, that was, that was a great day. This person got saved. Wow, we did baptisms today. Oh, this was a good week. Oh, praise God, this was a good month. And then before I know it, trials come again. Sorrow comes again, despair comes again. And so that's what I love here, the reality of the Christian life. Verse nine, I'll say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A Psalm of David, 
There is the resemblance here. Why have you forgotten me? Verse nine, there seems to be a lot of correlation between the Psalms of David and many of the things that we read here in this Psalm. I like that song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Like when Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, are you gonna go away also? I just told people to eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you want to have any part in me, if you want eternal life, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they go, we're not, many of the disciples, it says, fell away. We're not going to eat your flesh. We're not going to drink your blood. Of course, Jesus is speaking spiritually there. And he's testing them. And he looks to Peter and he says, Peter, are you going to go away also? Are you going to leave like all these other disciples? And what does Peter say? No, Lord, you have the words to eternal life. He's essentially saying, you're my rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand on all other ground is sinking sand. Where else am I going to go? I'm just going to sink. All other paths lead to hell. Why would I leave you? I don't necessarily understand, Jesus, what you're teaching there. I don't necessarily understand some of these trials I'm going through in life, you might say, or the psalmist is saying here. Why? Why am I in despair? Why am I going through this? But one thing I know for sure, I'm not going anywhere. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm not turning to sin. I'm not turning to the world. I'm not turning my back on you, Lord. Help me, God. Verse 10. It says, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Have you ever been hurt to the point or it was emotionally so painful your body was aching. Maybe that's where they got the term. That was like a knife in the back when you've been betrayed, when you've been slandered, when you've been hurt by another. And I believe that's what the psalmist here is saying in verse 9 or verse 10. It's like a shattering of my bones. It's literally like a breaking or crushing of my bones when they're taunting me and saying, where is your God? This trial is hurting me so much that it, physically is hurting me, like my bones are being crushed. Wow, amazing. Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. I'm so thankful that he ended on that note the back and forth. It's like a boxing match. You know, the enemy's getting an uppercut in, but he's still fighting. He's going back and forth. He ends with hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. As I begin to bring this message to a close here over the next couple minutes, I want to talk about hope for a minute. There's something that we have that the psalmist didn't have, or at least he didn't see clearly. You know, the Bible teaches that we look through a glass dimly, and especially in the Old Testament, they looked forward to the Messiah, but they didn't understand fully who the Messiah was. And we have a more sure word today. We have hope in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.27 says, To whom God willed to make known what the wealth of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is, the mystery that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, 
It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. And of course, Titus 2.13, right up here on the wall, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was talking to a brother yesterday, and he was just telling me how, man, we need to look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. And he confessed to me, he said, I feel like I've kind of had this fatalistic mindset as a Christian. Like, we're, we're just coming towards the end times. The world's just getting worse and worse. Politicians or whatever are going to continue lying. People are going to wax worse and worse. Their love is going to grow cold. The Antichrist is going to come. Almost like this gloom and doom. Like, yep, that's just where we're going. Instead of going, no, Jesus is going to come back. He's our blessed hope. We should be joyful. We should be ready. That should bring peace and hope and joy to us no matter what we're going through because we're going to be with him. Like Jesus taught his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you may be with me always. The Bible teaches we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We're going to judge angels. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And so as we set our eyes on Christ, who is our hope, and we are anticipating, we're looking towards his return. Which brings me to that song that I love, Living Hope. It says, how great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. And so I often think, what if you woke up in the morning, and it's almost blasphemous to say this, but you're gonna get the point, I think. What if you read in Matthew 4, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, towards the end of the book of John, if it said, you know, Jesus, Satan tempted him, but Jesus gave in to the temptation. He was so tempted in the garden to turn back, to not go forward, to die on the cross for our sins, that he just threw in the towel. He gave up. So there's no hope. Jesus failed the test. There's no way for us to get into heaven. Jesus was the only way. So therefore, we're all in our sins now. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that's what happened to where you and I wake up in the morning literally knowing we're on our way to hell and there's no way for us to be saved. There's no way to find forgiveness of sins. There's no way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with joy and peace and hope. There's no hope of everlasting life, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. The only thing we would have in store is destruction, despair, gnashing of teeth. How miserable would that be? But praise God, of course, that's not what happened. Jesus passed every test. He went to the cross for our sins. He died and he didn't stay in the grave. He rose on the third day and we should live in light of that, shouldn't we? We should wake up giving thanks to him, praising him, realizing that we have forgiveness of sins. This really is an awesome gift of God and we should treat it as such. The song closes with, who could imagine so great a mercy What heart could fathom such boundless grace? 
the God of ages, stepped down from glory to wear my sin and to bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who sets me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. If that doesn't bring joy and hope and peace and excitement to your soul, I don't know what will. And so this morning as I close this message, I want you and I to look to Jesus Christ. And I love what Paul says. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. All right. Praise God. We're going to go ahead and take communion. If you'll stand up and join with me as we look to Christ, as we remember what he did for us on the cross.